Hey, take your copy of God's Word and go to Jonah. I know you thought, well, we just got to chapter 3 and that's it. Uh, we had a little bit of a uh, Christmas pause in order to focus and fix our attention on the coming of Emmanuel, our Savior. And I uh, really thought by the 31st of December, the Lord would put us back in Jonah. However, he had to um, reveal the Jonah that's living in Jeff. going to be a long sermon, I can tell it already. Uh, he had to speak to me. I'll be candid with you. When you get to Jonah chapter 4, it is, it's, it really goes against the grain. And this is why you get to the end of chapter 3, it's glorious. There's revival. In fact, uh, conservative theologians, archaeologists, those who study uh, awakenings and revival tell us that you are holding in your hand, when you get to Jonah chapter 4, you are holding the empirical evidence of the single greatest revival collectively that's ever taken place in the history of known humanity. Never before has there ever been a revival that touched the lives of 650,000 plus people. An entire city came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be candid with you. What we'd like to do is just stop at chapter 3. That's what we'd like to do. Let's just quit. It's... Uh, I'm going to date myself a bit here, and I don't know that this illustration will connect with you. Uh, Christy, the first time, and I, first time she and I watched um, Gone with the Wind. Now, I know most of you have never seen that because half of you reprobates never even seen It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know how any of you are going to heaven. If you've never seen uh, Gone with the Wind, you really have missed a, a, an epic uh, cinematic adventure. And uh, when it gets to the end, uh, Christy and I had a little bit of a difference. Uh, we didn't have an argument because I was right. <laughs> if you remember, if you've seen the movie, when you get to the end of the movie, uh, Scarlett and Rhett been going, you know, they've just been back and forth. They've gone through a lot of tragedy. It's, it, it's a lot going on. And finally, Scarlett comes to herself and she, she realizes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been manipulating this man. I've been using him for his money. I, I, all of this that she, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, at the last scene, uh, really, Rhett has had an epiphany. In fact, he's had it with Scarlett. He's madly in love with her, but she's driving him crazy. Come to marriage conference next weekend. <laughs> so the last scene is she, she, she is begging him, don't leave. And, and she's being altruistic. She, she's really had a moment of, of deep introspective understanding. I need this man, but he's had it. And he uh, quotes a line I won't quote because, oh, some of you've seen it. Oh, well, at the end of that, um, Chris and I are uh, watching it together, married couple. And uh, he tells Scarlett what's on his heart, and he uh, turns and walks off into the deep, thick fog. And I'm telling Chris, Chris, that, that fog, is, it's, it's emblematic of his heart and his mind. He's hurt. He's wounded. But don't worry. He's coming back. They're going to get back together. My wife said to me, no, they're not. No, they're not. He's done. He's going to file for divorce and she's going to live in poverty the rest of her life. 
And I said, no, babe, I'm telling you, they, they're going to get back together. Now, there is really, there is a little bit of a sequel to Gone with the Wind, but it's not the point. The point is, you, you want it to end different than that. You, you want them to embrace and celebrate and finally figure out, out of all they've gone through, that they really are in love and they can't have life to the fullness without each other. That, that's a little bit of what's going on in this text. It's that moment when, when Jonah ought to be rejoicing, and, but instead he's pouting. He ought to be celebrating, but instead he's, he's, he's decided that he's angry at God. Now, for the sake of time, I want you to look at uh, Jonah chapter 1. Uh, I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read just to set the tenor and the tone. I'm going to give you a few uh, principles to put down in your heart for your own private praise and prayer time. Look at verse 1 if you're with me, say amen. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city. And there he made for himself a shelter or literally a booth. And he sat under it until the shade, uh, in it, uh, in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You and I um, um, are endeavoring in two weeks, we are going into uh, a missions conference called Until All Have Heard. This will be my first time uh, by pastoral privilege to be with you in a missions conference. What makes missions so uh, challenging for a congregation is really twofold. And if you're taking notes, I'm telling you, this is worth taking note. Missions uh, is the greatest evidence of spiritual maturity. It is the greatest evidence of spiritual maturity. Now, why is missions the greatest evidence of a spiritually mature church? Because here's the second component. Missions is also the hardest in, in spiritual disciplines because it has the least return to the flesh. When, when you do missions, it really has nothing to do with our comfort, with, with our advancing necessarily the footprint of this church and this community. Missions is a selfless, sacrificial endeavor that really has nothing to do with anything other than the gospel. And that's why missions is hard. And we manipulate. I'm just going to be candid with you this morning. We, we tend to manipulate. We tend to, to uh, make appeals that are more to the flesh than they are to the Great Commission. We do whatever we can. We put half-starved little children up on screens, and we beg you to give up a Coke, a day, you know, a Coca-Cola a day or walk off from a meal a day or do something in order to endeavor to do missions. Now, here, here, all of that may be productive for a moment, but it doesn't produce maturity in the passion of a church. It just doesn't. And I'm going to tell you something else that we've done, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking about us, and I'm not being critical, I'm just being honest. This is an embarrassing text. Somebody, for the love of all that's holy, explain this text to me. How can 650,000 people who were strapped in the darkness of demonic activity, gripped 
by paganism. They were known for their raping, pillaging, uh, raising communities. And when I say raise, I don't mean up. I mean leveling them to the point that those that did live were enslaved and those who died counted it a, a, a mercy of God to not have to live under the Ninevites. There was no greater feared enemy in Jonah's day as a Hebrew than the Ninevites. And they were the prevailing country of the hour. Why is this preacher setting up on the east side of the city, which by the way, if you know the geography, that's the place to get the greatest vantage point. What's he doing up there? Why is he retreated from the city that's an all-out, open, holy ghost, hanky-waving, pew-jumping, snot-slinging, soul-saving, devil-chasing revival? They had, they had aluminum tubs all over the city. Three of you got that. <laughs> People were, were, were elated to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and where's the preacher? He's taken a vantage point on the east side of the city so that he could look down upon this mammoth, this mammoth ocean of humanity that is now repenting of their paganism, embracing the deity, the holiness of Jehovah. And, and, and quite literally what the text says is this. He looked over to see. Now the text says to see what would happen to the sea. Let me tell you what he was really looking for. This is what he's looking for. I hope God does Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. I hope God smites them, burns this thing. Because this is what his thought was. They're never going to repent. They're never going to relent. They're never going to turn from their wicked ways and come to God. So he goes up on, on, on the east side of the city of Nineveh, and, and he looks over, and he's just waiting with bated breath, thinking, boy, it ain't going to be long. They're going to get what they deserve. How does a man, how does a believer come to this indifference, this, this antipathy. How do you get to a place where God is on the brink of pouring out the single greatest revival recorded in history, but you and I retreat to a place of complacency? In fact, the truth of the matter is Jonah's sitting there hoping not only do they not get revival, he's hoping for revenge. I got to be careful here because I, I don't want to be misunderstood by what I'm saying. And I don't want to come off autocratic or critical. I have a lot to say, and I, I understand that there are those who don't come to this church, some who would love to come to this church, but my presence demands their absence. But I'm a big boy, I can handle it. I was six foot three when I moved here. <laughs> I'll be an Oompa Loompa when I retire. And even of late, we've had folks that have said, we'd love to come there, but I'm just going to be candid with you. They've, they've relayed to my wife. He, 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 he says too much about the political situation of the land. I'll be candid with you. I don't think I say enough about it. I don't think I'm honest enough about it sometimes. In fact, the truth of the matter is my greatest struggle right now is I've been with you over nine years, working on 10 years, and you are so affectionately, deeply engrafted into my heart that I catch myself in my flesh sometimes weighing what God tells me to say against how much I love you. And I, 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 God, I mean, I don't want to move again. Come on, say amen, you bunch of backsliders. We, we, 
we've become so comfortable in American Christianity that there's a little bit of Jonah in us. We're okay watching the world die and go to hell. I mean, we're blessed. I mean, I'll be candid with you. We're so blessed in this church. We're a mess. We're blessed to the point that in this room are, are a couple dozen students who just came back from Atlanta uh, unapologetically, passionately pursuing the things of God. Joined with, what, 100 plus thousand other students in their own demographic to lift up the name of Jesus in the Mercedes Benz and unapologetically say to a city, Atlanta, that Jesus Christ is king of all. We have a team that just returned uh, handing out boxes. They call them cheer packs. There's something along the lines of what Samaritan Purse does in, in taking the gospel to people in such deep poverty they, would have, they, they, they can't believe there is a God. And filled in that box are all kinds of little trinkets that do nothing other than open a door to say to somebody, you think this is good. You ought to meet the one who gave everything he had so you could be with him. We, we farmed it out in some ways. And I'm, 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 I'm trying to get to a point of encouragement here. Hang with me. We've reduced the church to paying off We have two major offerings in Southern Baptist life. We call it Lottie Moon and Annie uh, Armstrong. Early on before I knew better, and there's a lot of times I don't know better, I proposed to a church I was pastoring. I said, we ought to give our body for Lottie and our fanny for Annie. (laughs) It didn't go over well. And finally, I asked somebody one time, when are we going to get this woman named Lottie paid off? It's our foreign missions. And it, I'm, not knocking, I'm not knocking the organization. We are Southern Baptists because we are organizationally linked with other like-minded churches to do collectively what we could not do individually. But here's the truth of the matter. We've become way too comfortable putting money in the budget or an envelope to send somebody, send money to somebody when the somebody that ought to be going is us. And it's much easier to pay off and say in our own conscience, you know, well, we, we're giving stellar dollars to missions and we're underwriting to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars in endeavors. That's true. But the truth of the matter is, beloved, that God's not quit calling people out of the local church to preach, to teach, and to go in Jesus' name. And that doesn't mean you've got to pack up, sell out, and go live in a hut and eat monkey the rest of your life. It may simply mean, like many of our missionaries here do, they take their vacation time and they utilize that for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jonah is in a mess because he's lost sight of what's happening. Now, I'm going to give you four very quick principles. I mean this, very quick principles that I think will help us uh, identify the ailing missions passion that we have in the church. How can this preacher, Jonah, not be elated that a whole city has repented? Look, look if you would at verse one again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. I love the new King James translation because it catches, uh, it captures uh, the, the, uh, the flow of the text, the tense of the word. The King James says, and he was wroth, I think. But the new king really, he became angry. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Here's the first thing we have to deal with in in missions. We got to deal with our flesh. Who Who taught Jonah to hate these Ninevites this much? Who taught him that? Some spiritual mentor, somebody spoke into his life and said, let me tell you something. God can't save the Ninevites. 
Now, I know this is going to amaze you, and I'm embarrassed to even tell this. But I'm going to yield to the Holy Ghost of God, and I'm going to share something with you that in my ignorance I had never heard before. And I don't think it's prevalent in today's, uh, certainly, I don't, I've never heard it in this, in this context nor in this community. But I'm going to tell you how easily this, this slips in to a church. When Chris and I, um, we'd just gone through her cancer and uh, the loss of our first child, and then almost immediately God moved us to a little town called Savannah, Tennessee that would ultimately become our home. For 12 years, we would be involved in a church that absolutely experienced the outpouring of the Holy Ghost of God in ways I don't have time this morning to even begin to share with you. We'd only been there a couple of months, and there was already a, a move of the Spirit of God There was a prominent businessman in that church who had the spirit that we're talking about in the flesh. I would notice that when we would give the invitation and the altars would swell and people would come to get saved or repent and get right, I would notice he would cross his arms and he was of a a countenance that his face would get all red, he was bald and his head would kind of glow like a big old red light bulb. You could tell he was mad, mad. Well, the problem, I thought, was because the services were going long. I know you're shocked. And he owned a local restaurant. In fact, he was, he was very prominent, and he, he intentionally wanted the church to end at 5 to 12 so he could get to his restaurant, and I just thought that was it. One day, he invited me out to his home, very nice home. He had several horses, and um, he asked me to ride with him, and uh, I hate riding horses. I love horses, but I hate riding horses. But I, I, I did it, you know, just out of reluctance, but I did it I, trying to be a good pastor. I knew something was up in his spirit. We get on this horse. <laughs> After it rubs me off three times, bites me, kicks me, spits on me, <laughs> I finally get out in the middle of a pastor with this guy, and he pauses, and he, this, this is what he said. He said, I guess you're wondering why we're here. I said, well, I guess the enjoyment of riding this beast right here. I'm sure that's what it is. He said, preacher, we love you, and we're grateful that people are getting saved, but I'm going to tell you what's got to stop. This got to stop. (laughs) I love you, but I'll cut you. (laughs) He said, there's uh, people come to our church that we don't want there. I said, really? who's we? He said, well, there's several of us. And I said, well, who do you not want? He said, well, now, before I tell you who we don't want and who you're going to have to tell has to leave, I need you to understand you're young and you have not been trained in the Bible like some of us. Now, I admit that. I was a novice in a lot of ways and just getting into Liberty Baptist Theological, the university, not even the seminary. That's what he said to me. He said, preacher, you don't know this, but uh, you live now in the deepest south of Tennessee. And in the Bible, it talks about the mark of Cain and the curse of Ham, and that's black people. That's what he said to me. He said, no black people can be saved. They they don't have souls. I said, I I remember what I said, because I'm sitting on this horse. (laughs) I remember exactly what I said. I said, dude, you know, I used to smoke stuff made me think that too. (laughs) 
He said, uh, preacher, all, all these people that are coming, they don't look like us. They're, they're different color. He said, listen, we don't, we don't care. You know, if you, you, you need to send them to another church. I said, let me tell you who's going to another church. He said, we'll call it to a vote. I said, what, what? saddle up, big boy. <laughs> Let's do it. Now, what happened on the heels of that, I'm not going to share with you because it's agonizing. But I will tell you, you better not put your hand on what God's doing. I watched that man, one of the wealthiest, most powerful individuals in that community. I watched him over the next six months. Not only did he almost lose his business, he almost lost his life. And because he would not repent, God took his, his, uh, he had a stroke and he was never able to speak again. And I am convinced to this day, the Holy Ghost of God shut him down because he was talking nonsense. See, this is what happens. This is what will happen. You buy some errant uh, uh, doctrine that's not in the Word of God. Let me just explain to you. That's not in the Word of God. Yellow, black, and white, they're all precious sinners. Do you understand that? Every, we're all sinners at the, foot of, uh, at the foot of Calvary. So what Jonah's doing is he's got a prejudice that's been bred by his context. And he's looking at that city based on his flesh instead of his faith. And because he doesn't understand the ever loving, pursuing, relentless love of God, he can't take the very thing that rescued him from the depths of the sea in a prepared fish and extend that same grace to people that needed it as much as he did. That's what happens to missions. When you get so comfortable and you get so complacent and you think that somehow or another the numerical size of a church is what makes a success. No, the seeding capacity of a church is not what deems it a success. It's the sending capacity that makes it a success. So he's got to deal with his flesh. He's got to say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lord, I, I, I don't like the Ninevites. Okay, we can be honest. I mean, I've said to God many a time in the last eight and a half years, I don't like them. <laughs> Let me look over here. I don't like them. <laughs> hey, man, you, you, you don't have to like everybody, but when the supernatural love of God is shed abroad in your heart, something supernaturally happens to you. You love people you couldn't love because you were loved with a love that didn't come from you. So if there is inside of you anything, anything that would say to anybody of color or creed or disposition or economic status, you would say to them, you know, that's just really not what we want at our church. You've missed the point of the church. You've missed the point of the gospel. Jonah said, um, uh, you don't understand God. What they really need is they need to be judged and that city needs to be burned to the roots. And what God's trying to do is take the very grace that rescued this rebel prophet and, and help this rebel prophet understand that at his worst, God extended grace, and at their worst, they need the grace of God. Now, here's a, here's a second component. Say amen. I, I knew, I told the Lord, it's going to be tough plowing. I told him, he said, do it anyway. Not only we got to deal with our flesh, uh, I want you to notice... Uh, it, we got to deal with the fellowship factor. Now, this is not immediately obvious. You may not buy this, and I'm not trying to impose it on the text, but, but I, I do think it's a principle that's true to the text. Uh, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he went up the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter, and he sat under it in the shade. Now, if you've never been in the Middle East, I'm going to tell you something. It, it gets seven kinds of hot. 
When we're touring in the Engedi down into the desert, if you don't find somewhere to get out from under that sun, in fact, Chris and I, we don't do teaching tours much uh, anymore, even uh, past the end of May into June, because it's, it's just an unforgiving, unrelenting beat down from the sun because it's brutal. So he's looking for a place, verse, uh, verse six, and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it. Uh, come up over Jonah that it might uh, be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Now, here's what the Lord's going to do. He's, here's a guy waiting for the utter destruction of a whole nation. Instead of rejoicing in the revival, you do know that religious people don't like revival. Did you know that? You, you want to you clean a church out and get the old moss back, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, bylaw-toting crowd to get up and move out so them overflow folk can get in here, just have a good old-fashioned hanky-waving, snot-slinging, hell's hot, heaven's sweet revival, and you'd be surprised how many will say, oh, I, I just don't like that. Yeah, I know why you don't like that. Hit dog hollers. That's why you don't like it, because it gets uncomfortable, and God will put his finger on it. This is exactly what he's doing here. This is what God's going to do. He's going to deal with a fellowship factor. Now, I ask you something. Why did Jonah not pack it up and go back to Israel after he heard that, the, you know, once he realized the revival had broken out? Why didn't he go back to Israel? Because he's conflicted. He knows that he ought to be rejoicing, but he's so steeped in prejudice and resentment that he can't celebrate the very work of the Spirit. Do you know what the smallest mind will do inside biblical communities? This is what the smallest mind, the weakest spirit will do. They'll put God in a box under a label. Because once I put you in a box and I label you, I don't have to, I don't have to get to know you anymore. Once I relegate you to some label that has been, that has been deemed unorthodox or unscriptural, which may or may not be true. See, I don't even have to get to know you. I just get to look at you and say something like this. Well, you know what? I wouldn't hang out with them. They're, uh, you know, well, you know what they are. What are they? And then you use a label. You see, what happens is it breaches our fellowship. And by breaching our fellowship, we never get to know each other for who we really are. And that'll kill revival every time. Here's, here's, here's an interesting factor. I'm going to wade off into this just because I, I think this room's ready. When Jonah resisted the revival, God purposely brought him shelter from the sweltering heat. And then God asked him a question. After, after God takes the vine away, which is creating not only, we understand in Middle Eastern terms, not only did it create a, a shade, but, it, but the vine, and I don't have time to unpack this. You're going to do it on your own. This vine is very strategic. There's a very specific vine, and it grows in such a way. Now, I'm just, just look it up. No, I'm not making this up. It grows in such a way that it grows anywhere from 5 to 10 feet a day. That's an incredible, that blows my mind. That's an archaeological fact. But it grows in such a way that it, it, it's, it's what's called a conduit gourd. It draws the air and it creates a natural flow of cool air. So Jonah's sitting under the grace of God out from under the sweltering sun and he's looking at a city hoping God smites it instead of revives it and saves it. And God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that vine away and then I'm going to ask you a question. How in the name of all that is holy can you rejoice that 
they, you can't rejoice that they've been delivered from the fires of hell, but you're mad that I took the vine away that put the sun, which turned the heat up on you. Did you catch that? Do you know there's sometimes what God will do? He, he will give us a chance to repent by the goodness of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For he says, the good things will cause us to repent. Anybody in here got some good things in their lives? I mean, I'm talking about money can't buy it. Wouldn't fit under the tree. Didn't come in a box. You didn't order it from Amazon. UPS did not deliver it. It came on the wings of God's mercy. And you just say, boy, I'm telling you what, I, I'm so blessed. I'm a mess. All three of you. Praise the Lord. Can I just pause here and do a quick advertisement? I told, uh, I told y'all, not because I'm, I'm smarter than you, but because I just know the biblical principle, which I, and all I was doing is reinforcing this. When you and I made the very controversial decision, we made a controversial decision in this house, whether you knew it or not. In fact, I wasn't even here to lead us. I did it online. I didn't even ask anybody if we could do it. I went online during my vacation when Israel got attacked on October the 7th, and uh, I stayed silent. I stayed, off, I stayed off the internet for two or three days because I needed a word from the Lord. And then, because it became uh, apparent what was going on and how atrocious, uh, atrocious it was, about three days into our vacation, I told Chris, look, I, I, I got to break radio silence. I got to speak to my people. And the only way I can do that is get, up, get my big head on, fa- on Facebook and tell my folks, God's still on the throne. He has not forsaken Israel. And when I get home, we're going to take a love offering up. And that love offering's half of it's going to uh, Franklin Graham, Samaritan Purse, boots on the ground in Israel. And the other half is going to our missionary, boots on the ground, Anton uh, in northern Hezbollah, which he's in and out of his home right now uh, has, uh, um, in Hebron. He can and can't live there half the time because Hezbollah's lobbing rockets in on him. So uh, we, we, we took an offering. Y'all remember that? And I said during that offering, I didn't know what it was going to be. One guy said to me, preacher, if that thing pops 5,000, it'll be glory, hallelujah. That thing popped 50,000. Free will, no manipulation, $50,000 we've sent to, to bless the people of God. Now, there's a, there's a promise in the Bible. It says, whom blesses Israel will be blessed. Is that right? So I, I told y'all when, that, when, when it started coming back, and it came in online, it came from this room, I said to this church, y'all, y'all better get your blessing, blessing buckets out because I'm telling you right now, we, God's going to bless us. Now, I want to be very clear here. We didn't give to get. We gave whether God was going to do anything or not. But his word said, whom blesses my people, I'll bless. That's what it says, right? So I, I, started, I started just watching for a pattern. Not, not only, not only, we gave $50,000 online and collectively out of this fellowship. We have soldiers that we've sponsored in the Gaza right now with the gospel of John that are Orthodox Jews that the care package we put together with the money we sent to our missionary, when they opened up that care package with basic needs to just be able to live in a military zone, there's a gospel of John and it's marked from the faith family of Fairview Knox Church, Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville, Tennessee. I said, God, you're going to do something with this. Right on the heels of that, from October, uh, we took that offering uh, late October. By by the time I got back home, we took the offering. I got a letter from uh, Franklin Graham just thanking us because he's able to advance the gospel in ways with that money in in Israel that uh, most can't. Then I got a phone call from one of our church members who own, own a prominent business in Knoxville, 
and uh, uh, he invited me to go live on TV, live on TV, live on TV. And I got one of them Ed McMahon checks. Woo! If you don't know, you out to know. Stood right there with a check, $150,000. Holy Ghost said, those who bless Israel, I'll bless. Get home from uh, going to check on Aunt Dot and Chris's dad and a businessman who doesn't go to this church. In fact, to my knowledge, doesn't have a church family, but watches. Poured $30,000 into this church for, for ministry. Just led of the Spirit, no solicitation. Now, wait, I'm not done. I'm not done. Most of you won't even know who I'm talking about. There's an artist. There's a born-again Jewish believer. His name's Joshua Aaron. He is a phenomenally anointed, gifted uh, music evangelist out of Israel. Now, I'll be candid with you. To ever have somebody like a Joshua Aaron, that's that. I mean, we're, we're blessed and highly favored, but let's just be honest. Dolly's not coming here and Joshua isn't either. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I get a call this week from a rabbi that I study the Bible with who we both, his congregation and our congregation support the same missionary, the Israeli believer in the northern part of Israel. And he said, hey, have you ever heard of Joshua Aaron? I said, heard of him. Have I heard of him? I said, if I die, my wife's going to marry him. What are you talking about? Have I heard of him? What are you talking about? I said to her the other day, I said, hey, let me ask you something. We're having some work done on the house. I said, uh, and it's very inconvenient. I mean, this is the worst time in the world to do this right now, okay? The worst time. And we have to have some things fixed. And I said to her, well, I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to kill me, and I hope your second husband likes what we've done. That's what I said to her. She said, oh, he's got a much bigger house. We ain't going to need this one. <laughs> what said to me? kept walking. She didn't even turn around and wink. She just kept going. He said, uh, uh, preacher, um, we, we want Fairview to partner with us and host Joshua Aaron and two other of the leading Israeli evangelical singers, Christian singers in the world. We want you to be a part of that. And I said, hey, my name's Jeff LeBorg, and I'm at Fairview. Are you got the right number? He said, yeah, we got the right number. He said, we've heard how you love Israel, and we don't want another church in this town to go with us except y'all. We're going to host that right here. Now, most of you have no clue how big that is. That's like telling Muslims Billy Graham's coming to town. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they don't understand. They have no comprehension of that. What I'm trying to convey to you is this. When you deal with your greatest fear in the flesh... When you deal with the thing that's keeping you from going where God's calling you and doing what God's calling and equipping you to do, I'm telling you there are multiplied blessings that cannot be bought. They can't be manipulated. God does stuff in ways that you can't calculate. So what Jonah's missing here is he's missing the fellowship component. Now, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Once he is confronted with his fear that the Ninevites are not legit, they're not real. Listen to me. That's up to God. Leave that mess to God. I, I know we're inclined to say, well, preacher, you don't know them and how bad they are. Listen, I know me and how bad I was, and if God can save me, he can save anybody. 
So stop doing that. Now, secondly, here's the fellowship component. Why wasn't there a natural antidote to, to Jonah's fears? Why, why wasn't he able to overcome this? For the same reason, for the same reason that had I bought into that man's lie on that horse that day, had I allowed one of the, one of the most powerful, financial, prestigious men in Hardin County, Tennessee, to have sown that into my heart and say, well, you know, I am young and dumb and he's, he's older and got money and he probably knows, had I given room to that nonsense, I would have grieved the Holy Ghost of God and, we, and I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, he'd have shut that spigot of, of move and the, the move of the Spirit. He, it would have grieved that church and I don't think we'd have ever seen the things we saw over 10 years in just the continual outpouring of the Spirit of God. So what you do by operating in fear instead of faith is you become more concerned about what somebody thinks about you than what God's doing through you. Now, I, I'm going to make a statement. I can't say 100% this is true because everybody, everybody's different in this room in personality. And we all, we all worship in a different perspective. But I do suspect that one of the reasons we've got to have a resurrected body when we get to heaven to worship is because God's got to get this nonsense out of our carnal, fleshly minds and bodies that we quit worrying about who's sitting next to us when we worship. Well, that's good right there. Now, I'm just going to tell you. Well, I mean, I'd like to give the Lord a good hallelujah, but I mean, they might think I'm filling the label. What do you think you're going to do when you get to heaven? I mean, let's just be honest. What do you think you're going to do when you get to glory? Are you going to walk up to the king of kings and go, oh, nice to meet you? <laughs> do you honestly believe that? Do you understand that a major component of what we're going to do in glory is worship? It's to lift him up. Jonah can't even enjoy the wave of God's revival. He can't be the missionary God's called him to be because he's operating in fear. Chris and I had the honor of pastoring a young lady several years ago who was absolutely on fire for God. And I asked her this question one day, because I'm going to tell you what, she was, she was relentless. She was fearless. If she weighed 80 pounds, she was four foot 11. And she, I'm telling you, she was like a mixture of Billy Graham and Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I love you, but if you don't get saved, I'm going to kill you. I mean, she was just that intimidating. And I said to her one day, I said, I'm going to ask you a question because you're in high school. What, what do you do about peer pressure? Don't you listen to what she said to me? Oh, pastor, I am peer pressure. <laughs> said, what? She said, oh, yeah, I am the peer pressure. She said, when I walk in, they either get right or get gone. Because they know when I come in, I'm going to tell them what God's doing in my life. Now, she would, you know, she wasn't turn or burn up in their business you know, tell them, that's not what, she just had such a, a way about her. And I thought, you've got to be taking it on the nose. You know what she told me? She said, every time I'm criticized, she said, I've learned something. Every time that somebody makes fun of me or they put some stupid something on my locker, she said, I start counting it down because that means I'm going to win somebody to Jesus. Now, what if you operated in that capacity? 
What if instead of, instead of, instead of operating in the fear that was inbred in you in cultural Christianity, you started fellowshipping with others who were so passionate about what God was doing? This is why we're losing a lot of younger generations. When you have to supplement their worship, which is passionate and raw and authentic and unbridled, I didn't say unbiblical. This is why so many young people are moving out of the out of the traditional church because they go to a place like passion and they come back home and the very thing they experience there in the authenticity and in the, in the energy of God's presence, it's squelched in the average church. You ever notice how students go to camp in the first two or three weeks back? Son, I'm telling you, there's a sin spot on the pew when they get up. I mean, they just, they're on fire for God. Two or three weeks and then it begins to wane out. Somebody asked me why one time. I said, because of who they're hanging out with. Their parents. <laughs> I think we need to have an adult youth camp. Send some of y'all to camp. Y'all all right this morning? Pucker up on me. I'll preach another 30 minutes. <laughs> now watch what he does. He's, he, God deals with the fear in his heart. But then he also deals with the fellowship factor. He takes away his comfort. Now don't, don't miss that. Don't miss that. Why would he remove the vine that's producing a flow of air and, and, and keeping the sun from beating him down? Why would he discomfort Jonah? Because there's a physical aspect to it. Amen? Uh, uh, we have to manage the air in this room. I go up here in these lights, and I go home and peel these clothes off, wring them out, and we ship them off. We burn them seven times, and we go buy new ones because I'm soaked by the time I'm done. Why? Because it, you get cold. You get cold, so they have to make it 111 degrees in here. Why? Because if you're not comfortable, you complain. Well, it's much easier for you to put it on than it is for me to take it off. If you don't quit complaining, I'm going to start preaching in my bathing suit. That's a lie. I would not do that. I'm trying to convey to you there, there's, a, there's a physical component to this. There's, there's an aspect to this where God says, listen, I'm not indifferent. I know you don't want to move to Africa, live in a hut, and eat monkey. I know you don't, but I would love for you to at least engage the community that I have around you. Now watch how he ends this, and I'm done right here. Watch how he ends this. It's a very convicting text. When you get to Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11, he ends this in such an odd way and he, it, with a question. He said, verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much livestock? He, he says hey, there's, there's 120 kids in the community that have not come to, to the saving point of accountability. Now, I want to say something. I'm going to pastor you very quickly, and I'm done right here. When you're sharing the gospel, I used to hear this a lot in Baptist life. I don't hear it as much anymore. I think we've tried to correct it. You will hear people talk about the age of accountability. And early on in the ministry, I would hear people say this. They'd say something like this. Well, you know, preacher, um, he's going to be 12 next year. That's the age of accountability. Where's that at? It's in here? Is that in here? 12 and you're done. Turn or burn. I mean, where's that at? And I'm always, I mean, I always give you the benefit of the doubt because truth is I wasn't raised in this book and I'm always learning things that I didn't know about this book. So I tore one of these apart looking at 12, 12, 12. Where's 12? Turn or burn, 12. And then I met a lot of people I thought they didn't make it past 12. So anyway, that's a different sermon. 
Well, what they've done is they've imposed the, the Jewish tradition of bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah when a child turns 12 to 13 years old. They impose that on a person. Listen very carefully, I'm going to say to you. What's your Nineveh? What's the one place that you fear the most? And it's not that you want their destruction. It's not that you don't want them to be saved. It's just here's the truth of the matter is, <laughs> that's my Nineveh. Can I tell you what it is for most people? It's their family. It's their family. And how do I know that? Well, I, I have a family, number one. And they, my family knew me before I came to Christ. So in coming to Christ was such a radical difference in my life, this, immediately what I heard was, that's not real. You're just, you're trying to get out of trouble. We know you're in trouble and you think you got jailhouse religion. No, I got full on Jesus. That's all it was, just Jesus. What's your Nineveh? Who's the, who's the one or two that you are reluctant to just sit down and say? Because here's the truth of the matter. We don't know. There is not an age of accountability. It's not. There's nowhere in the Bible that says at 12, 13, they enter into the age of accountability. That's not, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. It's not an age of accountability. It's a point of accountability. It's a moment of awakening. Now, so what's the point of this message? Here's the point of the message. You're a missionary. And you could be walking up on anybody at any time. It could be, it could be a seven-year-old boy. It could be a nine-year-old girl. It could be a grown man who's toyed with the things of God, sat in a service where the Spirit of God gripped their heart and said to them, you're lost and on your way to hell. And the point of accountability for a child that's willing to receive the truth may be radically different than a grown man who's been church hurt and lied to. And that point of accountability is not for the preacher to bring to an altar. It's for you to be able to say in that moment as a missionary, hey, can I just share with you how Jesus Christ radically changed my life? And it's not your job to lead them in a prayer. It's your job to share Jesus with them to the point that when they come under conviction, the prayer is a natural response to this. Lord, I'm on my way to hell, and you sent somebody to stand right here beside me in a moment of absolute desperation and accountability, and it could be a grown man, a little boy, or a girl. It's a point of accountability. It is not an age of accountability. Why is that important? Because you and I are living in the last moments of the last days. And I'm telling you not to scare you. I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, we have lost our minds in this world. Nigeria is the single greatest point of Christian martyrdom right now in the world. Just since Christmas morning, they've killed hundreds the Muslims are dragging them out of their homes. Typically, this is what they're doing. I'm going to be very careful, parents. You need to talk to your children about this because Christianity has a cost to it. They drag the dad out, the believing father, and this is what they're doing. They're dragging the father out, and they say to the dad, you recant and you lead your household away from Christianity and into Islam, or we're going to, we're going to kill your children. This is what they're doing. They're bringing them out one by one. They kill they kill the youngest to the oldest, and if he won't recant, they kill his wife. And then they also, if, if they won't recant, they bind the dad and they shut the uh, family up in the house. They nail the door shut and they burn the house to the ground while the wife and the child, the children are screaming to the dad. That is happening in record rate in Nigeria right now. And I almost guarantee you, you've not heard a word about it in U.S. media. 
Do you know why? Because at three o'clock this morning, I went into a prophecy briefing with some men that I study eschatology with, and guess what our State Department released 48 hours ago? This, this is our, our brilliant State Department. They released a statement about Nigerian Christian persecution and martyrdom, and this is what they said. It's not Muslims. Are you ready for this? It's climate change. <laughs> don't, don't take my word for it. Look it up. Our State Department said that the reason they're dragging our brothers and sisters out of their homes, burning them alive, cutting their throats, calling to recant and follow uh, uh, Islamic demonic doctrine is because of climate control. Have I told y'all lately sin will make you stupid? You've got to be out of your ever-loving mind. You mean to tell me that you can't be honest enough to say that's a full demonic assault against what we believe? It's not climate control. But I've got to ask you a question. Are we going to rely on the government to get it right? Are, 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 do we think that complacent, comfortable churches sitting under brush arbors are going to get it right? Beloved, I'm going to tell you something. It ain't going to be long till we're going home. Tonight, you're going to see a budget, and some of you are going to say, I, I, I thought we'd be giving more to cooperative program or more to foreign mission. Everybody's got an opinion. I'm going to tell you your, pastoral, your, your lead pastor's philosophy right now. When Pastor Ricci presents to you the stewardship report for missions, which it's incorporated into that, and you come to me, and you ought to come to me, and say, I, I, I mean, why aren't we doing more foreign soil? I'm going to tell you why. Because we are foreign soil. We are a post-Christian nation that is hurling out of control. And if there's ever been a mission field ever for us to touch, it's where we live. I'm not discounting foreign soil. I thank God for every sending every going missionary that just got back home, gave up their, their precious time with their family. I thank God for you. I want you to know that. But I'm going to tell you something. If we lose this nation, we got nothing to send from. And if we, quit ra we keep raising a generation that doesn't know how much God loved them and that the fact this nation exists is because of the grace of God, we exist for one single solitary purpose. We exist to advance the gospel. Not Wall Street not the White House. We exist for one purpose. That's to take the gospel around the world. But if we lose it at home, we got nobody to send from here to there. And it is time for the church of the living God to rise up and say, send us, we'll go.